Life is hard, and uh, this is why we ground ourselves in the Word of God week after week. It really is, it's, it's no joke for sure, and each week we are uh, challenged to, to say, will we extend ourselves in love? Will we love people and know that as we love people, our hearts will be broken by the pain, by the, the disappointment, by the trials of life, this being one example there. But uh, our God is, is good, and He loves us, and He's for us, and life is hard, and we need uh, a rock on which to stand. And so we come to His Word uh, day after day. For the next couple of months, we're going to be looking at uh, two last letters. One is the last letter in the New Testament, the letter we're going to get into this morning, which is Jude. The second is the last of Paul's 13 letters, which is the book of Philemon. These are books that often get neglected, overlooked, passed over, uh, but each one, I believe, has a word from the Lord for us and uh, I hope that, that God will meet us as we spend a little time pressing into this book of Jude and then the book of Philemon. The, the banner over this, these few weeks in Jude is contending for the faith. We're going to see in verse 3 that, that the writer is calling us to contend for the faith. It was once for all delivered to the saints. And we want to think about why is he calling us to this. It can sound like a far-off call, and yet I assure you it is a most urgent matter for right now where we are at. So please open your Bibles, if you would, to the 65th book of the Bible, the book of Jude, the letter of Jude, and stand with me as we read the Word of God. I will read our sermon text, which is the first seven verses, Jude verse 1 through Jude verse Seven. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. 
just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. May God bless the reading of his word. Father, we pray, help us in these few minutes we have together. We pray again that you would comfort Sabina and Eddie, draw near to the brokenhearted. Thank you that you have their little one safe with you forever. We need you now in these minutes. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, if you're like me, can have a seat. You, you may have been prone to disregard this little book, Jude. As a very new Christian, I came across this book and I didn't think much of it. But then I found this little book of Jude to be like a little fire ant. Have you ever experienced the glory that is a fire ant? This little insect that crawls so innocently on your leg. You think, oh, what a cute little fellow, until he bites your flesh off and you writhe in scalding pain and you realize he has brought help and suddenly you are sworn by more than one. They're all biting and they're all painful. Little creature with a big bite. This is a little book with a big bite. As a new believer, I was challenged to read this book 30 times in one week. And I began to read it. And the first couple of times, there was some yawning that happened. I thought, okay, what's, what's the big deal? What's going on here? And then as I began to read it a few more times, I realized there are all kinds of references that I have no idea what these are references to. I don't know what's going on. And as I got to the end of 30 times, I realized I need to spend some time in this book. So now, many years later, here we are to spend some time in this book. And I hope that you will grow in appreciating what God is doing for us in these 25 verses. As I said, the banner, the calling, is a call to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The word contend here is the word struggle. It is the word fight. And if you don't know, following Jesus is a struggle. Walking by faith in this world as a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, is a fight. And if we don't fight and we do not struggle, we will lose. Because there's a battle whether we acknowledge it or not. And all of us love movies and stories of, of struggle. Young men get excited when they hear the eye of the tiger and think about Rocky movies and getting in shape. Think about this journey of the, the underdog. Pastor Lou loves all 25 Avengers movies. I don't know how many there are. Marvel movies along with my children. I don't fully get them, but I get that there's a struggle. There's a fight. They're great. And Jude here is calling us to contend for the faith. He's not alone. We remember that the Apostle Paul in his last letter chronologically that he wrote, 2 Timothy, said at the end of his days, my departure is coming, and I want you to know that I've done three things. Remember what they were? I have fought the good fight. I haven't surrendered. 
I didn't throw in the towel. I didn't tap out. I didn't ask them to ring the bell. I have finished the race. I didn't quit. I didn't sit down. I didn't limp away. And I have kept the faith. I didn't abandon the faith. I didn't drift away from the faith. I have kept the faith. And he's saying these things not because they're nothing, but because they are everything. In Jubilee, together, we covenant together as a church family so together we can help one another say at the end of our days, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. And if we live long enough, we're going to go to a lot of funerals that I hope will be celebrations of God's keeping grace for us over many years. Jubilee, life goes fast. Time moves on quickly. When we were first beginning this church, my oldest was 10 years old. We had a couple of 8-year-olds. We had some 6-year-olds. We had a little 1-year-old, Gabriella, and one that wasn't even around yet. And you blink And suddenly it's 10 years has gone by. It's amazing. One of my favorite verses in the Bible speaks to this contending. When Paul says at the end of Colossians, it is Christ we proclaim and we warn everyone, we teach everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is the reason I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works it within me. And that is our goal here in this book, Jubilee. Think of your family. Think of your children. Think of your loved ones. Think of your siblings. Think of your parents. Are you a man and a woman taken up like Paul? Saying, Christ I proclaim. It's Christ we proclaim as a church. Warning everyone, teaching everyone that we may present everyone complete, mature in Christ. This is our goal. And so this morning in these seven verses we're going to see an introduction that is loaded. We're going to see this charge to contend and then we're going to see three shocking examples. And there will be many more as these weeks roll on. We're going to have to get our Bibles out and cross-reference and, and go back and study some of these references that are, are, are given for our instruction. So an introduction, a charge, and, and three examples. So it's begun in verse 1 in this introduction. And right off the bat, there is a lot to see here. There is some meat that we have to get off the bone here because he starts by uh, referring to himself as the author, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Right away we want to ask, who is this guy, Jude? Who is he? Well, he identifies himself as a brother of someone, a brother of James, right? And we know in the New Testament that there are two Jameses that are referenced, right? There is James, the disciple, who was the brother of John, but we read in Acts that he was killed. Killed by Herod. Remember, Peter's rescued, James is killed. And so this is not the James who he's referencing. He would not reference his brother. This is James, who is the brother of Jesus, which we read about in the Gospels. Remember, Jesus had some brothers who were born, obviously, after he was. 
James is one of those brothers. And Jude says here, I am a servant of Jesus and a brother of James. But work out the logic here. Jude is also the brother of Jesus. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. And this is very instructive for us. Because right out of the gate, the author of this book begins with a tremendous humility. He doesn't refer to himself as a big shot, as he could have. I'm Frank. Nice to meet you. What's your name? I'm Jude, the brother of uh, someone you might have heard of, Jesus of Nazareth, who rose from the dead. Nice to meet you, right? He could have lorded it over anyone, gotten anywhere. That's quite an introduction. But it's not how he introduces himself. What is he in reference to Jesus Christ? What's the word there? Say it for me nice and loud. He is a what of Jesus Christ? Say it. A servant. And this word servant is the word doulos, which means literally slave. A slave. A bondservant. And so Jude, though he is the brother of Jesus, knows himself to be something different because he knows who Jesus is. And he says, I am Jude, a slave, a servant of Jesus. Friend, let me ask you. Are you a doulos of Christ? Are you a servant of Christ? Are you willing to be identified this morning as a slave, in fact, of Christ? We know that slavery in our country has a long history. A month or two, we're going to talk some more about that. And yet it is important that we not lose this word slave, this word doulos here. Because Jude says, I am a slave of Christ. But he goes on in this introduction, and he gives us some words of identity, and he says, we are three things. Jude, a a, a doulos of Christ, I'm writing to you, believers who are three things. And oh, I love these three things, and I hope you love these three things. I hope you mark up your Bibles, mark these three things, because they are so precious. The Bible has so much to say about our identity and how our identity needs to be reworked, re-understood. The men's retreat, they're going to talk about identity. Love that. And here he says three things that are to mark you. If you are a believer in Jesus, these three things are true of you. He says, I am writing to those who are first called, called by God. Imagine getting a phone call from the president of the United States or maybe a former president of the United States if you like them more, right? You get a call from someone very important. That's a big deal, right? But to be called by God to say, you, and you, and you, you're my son, you're my daughter. Believers are those who are called to God, to his eternal purpose. Secondly, not only are we called, but we are beloved of the Father. This one is also amazing. When Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us to pray to his Father, and he said, he's not just my Father, but he's our Father, and now he says to you, you Abba, you are beloved of the Father. And we say, ah, 
okay, I get that in, in theory. Not sure I'm feeling that right here. Am I? Do I understand deep in my soul that I am beloved of the Father? This is who Jude is writing to. He says, I'm writing to those who are called, to those who are beloved in the Father. And thirdly, this word that, that Lou mentioned so well, those who are kept, kept by God, but kept for someone. We're being kept for someone. This is language that, that, that catches us a little bit off guard. Who, who does it say we're being kept for? We're being kept for Jesus Christ. We're being kept for Jesus Christ. Like a bride being kept for a groom. Friend, if you are here this morning, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are being kept by the Father for Jesus And you're being kept by the Father for Jesus because Jesus prayed that the Father would keep you. We read it in prayer meeting this morning. Father, I kept them while I was with them, but now I'm going away. You keep them. He said, I'm not praying for the world. I'm not praying for every single person on earth. I'm praying for those that you gave me. Would you keep them in the truth? And so, Christian, you are and even this week, try out this language. Use this as you're speaking to someone. When you're, when you're introducing yourself, it can be a little weird, right? Maybe not at a party with a complete stranger. But even to yourself, rehearse this language of identity. I am one who is called. I am one who is beloved of the Father. I am one who is kept for Jesus Christ. This is powerful. This is powerful. Paul said in Romans, he said, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And so we are, if we are in Christ, called, called to be saints. Jubilee, who are you? What is your identity? At our house, we've been sending kids off to college. And boy, I tell you, this hits you as you're sending your kid off to college. You think, what do they need? They need to know who they are. They need to know what their identity is. They need to know that they're an Erickson, yes. But more than that, they need to know that they are gods. That they are called, they are beloved of the Father, they are kept for Jesus. Because my goodness, that's a crazy thing you're throwing them into when they go off to college. And this is something we all need. Some of you have experienced trauma. Some of you have experienced a lot of lies in your upbringing, being told you were this and you were that, a lot of negative things, and that gets rolling around our head where our conversation in our head about ourselves is negative, negative, negative. And this is not the power of positive thinking. This is the power of cross-thinking, Christ-thinking. And our God says to us, you are those who are called, You are those who are beloved of the Father, and you are those who are kept for Jesus. So at lunch today, talk a little bit about identity, and talk about your own journey with identity, understanding the truth of who you are in Christ. And know that our Savior is calling us to put off the old man and all of its lies, and to put on the new. We know that great A.W. Tozer quote when he said, the most important thing about a man is what he thinks about in answer to the question, what is God like? 
And I would argue one of the second most important things about us is that we, after we understand God rightly, which is absolutely the first most important thing, that we understand who we are in Christ. Because these things go together. And this is a big deal. Who are you, believer? You are one who is called, beloved in God the Father, and one who is kept for Jesus. Well, he turns now in this greeting and and prays a prayer over them in verse 2. This also is so precious, so helpful. He says, may mercy, may peace, and may love be multiplied to you in Christ. You think, why is he praying these three things? He's praying for those that know themselves to be a sinner. They just confess sin. They say, God, I need mercy. And he says, may mercy be multiplied to you. Like the rabbits in our neighborhood, just more and more mercy, right? Just more and more fresh mercy every day. God pouring it out on us. Oh, I blew it again. It's all right. Mercy. There's mercy. May mercy be multiplied to you. When you come through the doors of the church, you are coming through the doors that are washed in the blood of Jesus. We don't come in our own righteousness. We come with mercy multiplied to us. Not only mercy, but peace. Who needs peace? The anxious, the fearful, maybe a couple of us in the room that have been struggling with that. And he says, may peace, the peace of Jesus, the peace that spoke peace to the winds and the waves, may that peace be multiplied to you. What a great word of prayer and blessing. And finally, may the love of Christ be multiplied, multiplied to you. Think about parenting and our love cup pours out, empties out. Think about loving children here and nursery and JYC. We need love. We need his love multiplied to us to keep loving lost people, to keep loving hard people, to keep serving. So he says these three things. What are the three that he wants to be multiplied to us? Let's read them together. May, what's the first one? Mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Short verses, big greeting. And now we turn and see the charge in verse 3. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, he wants to write about our salvation, just commending the faithfulness of God, commending uh, good things. He wants to do a biblical theology like has been done talk about our common salvation, talk about the reality that all of us have equal standing in Christ before the Father. If you go to a football game today, you're going to find that different, different amounts of money buy you different tickets. And some people, they're sitting way up on the, the top deck. When I brought my daughter to the football game earlier this year, the exhibition game, I brought her, we go and sat way up on the top deck. She said, well, this isn't too bad. I said, well, actually, we get to move down a little bit. We, we move down. But for the real games, you've got to pay a lot of money. And if you want to go sit right next to the field, it's going to cost you a lot of money, right? It's not the way it is with salvation. There aren't the rich people down in front, not the powerful people in the front row. It's not the people who were born into the right family who sit courtside. He says, I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. Salvation delivered once for all to the saints. And you, if you are in Christ, have been called to be a saint, which means you have equal standing with Peter. You have equal standing with Phoebe. You have equal standing with Calvin. You have equal standing 
with the saints of all the ages. He was eager to write to us about our common salvation. But, he said, I found it necessary instead to write appealing to you to do this one thing. And the one thing, this is our banner, this is the main point. The one thing is he was appealing to us that we would contend for the faith. Once for all, delivered to the saints. We would struggle for the faith. We would fight for the faith. Why? Because there is a battle for the faith. And we're either in or we're out. He said, it's necessary that I appeal to you that you would struggle for the faith. So Jubilee, I'm here to tell you that God's Word is calling us this morning to struggle for the faith. That we as a church together would contend for the faith. That you and your household would contend for the faith. That as a single person or as a grandparent, you would know that there is a calling from God to contend for the faith. Because it is under attack, under assault in so many different ways. Parents, we must earnestly contend for the faith. Older saints, like myself and others, we don't just float off into retirement. We don't just put our feet up and say, the younger folks can do this. No, we contend for the faith. Young people, it's not, oh, I'll wait till I grow up. No, children. Need every child in here, look at me. Every teenage person in this room, look at me. Every college student, contend for the faith. You are in the middle of the battle, wherever you are. There's going to be a lot of examples of this contending, of this fighting. And oh, Jubilee, it is so easy to drift off to sleep. So easy to believe the lie that Sundays are for football. And forget about contending for the faith. Put our sword away. Just play nice. Have brunch. Sports, that's where we earnestly contend. Action movies, that's where they earnestly contend. Those things are good and well in their place. But this, friends, is the true fight. This is the fight that matters for all eternity. The true struggle, the true battle right here. Battle for truth, for faith. And it's a battle we battle in together against a very powerful foe. Loved ones, I'm here to tell you that when a loved one departs the faith, we weep. We weep. We do not resign. We do not give up. It is very likely every person in this room will not finish the race. But oh, Jubilee. We're not going down without a fight because we are those who are called to be saints. We are those who are beloved of the Father and we are those who are being kept by the Father for Jesus. So we contend earnestly for the faith knowing that it's Christ we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Or as Philippians says, we are with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Shoulder to shoulder to shoulder to shoulder, hand in hand, arm in arm, together. Striving for the faith of one another. Striving for the faith of the next generation. Striving for the faith of our children. Striving side by side. Striving by our hospitality. Striving 
for, by helping another family. Striving in our workplace to be a faithful witness. Striving through loving and foster care. Striving in our serving. Striving in our teaching. Striving by loving the international student and the refugee. Striving as we give together in common cause. Striving as we pray together for the advance of the gospel. Striving as we write notes of encouragement to one another to keep on going. Striving as we grieve together with hope. And who is it that we must contend against? Verse 4. For, he turns our focus now to certain people. Look at verse 4 with me. For certain people. This is kind of a an understatement, kind of a catch-all term that he's going to unpack through the letter. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, there's a lot there happening. Let's, let's try to pull it out a little bit. And, and, and understand what he's saying. For certain people have crept in. Okay, so the, the idea here is into the family of faith, into the church. These are not people on the outside. These are not atheistic skeptics lobbing grenades. These are people who, in some form or fashion, take on the name of Jesus, come into the church. They creep in. Several months ago, my neighbor... Who, uh, who moved recently, Pastor Westerholm and his wife. They both forgot to lock their back door. And in our neighborhood, unfortunately, there are a lot of people that go around checking doors, check car doors, check house doors. A little frightening. You want to make sure you lock your door. Well, that night they both thought that they locked the door. 3 a.m., Mrs. Westerholm hears a noise, says to her husband, go, go downstairs. He's groggy, as most of us are at 3 a.m., thinking it's something silly. And he thinks maybe an animal or something, a squirrel on the back porch, and he's getting ready to yell at it. And uh, as he goes down, he sees the squirrel is six foot three, and it's not a squirrel. It's a guy in his back, back uh, entryway. And he said, I didn't have time to make a new plan, so I just gave him the squirrel speech. Hey, what are you doing? Get out of here! Unfortunately, the guy did take off. But that's a little frightening, isn't it? Someone creeps into your home. And it is frightening that certain people, he is warning us, will creep into our schools, into our churches, even into our extended family. They will creep in unnoticed, right? They didn't, they didn't have an alarm. They didn't have a, a bell going off when that happened in their house. And the bell doesn't go off when they creep in here. But who are these people? They are ungodly people who talk about the grace of our God, who take the kindness, the mercy of God, and they twist it. They pervert it for a false cause. They, they take the goodness of God, the grace of God to forgive sins, and they twist it. They pervert it and in doing so, he says, they deny 
our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now get the connection here. Who's writing this to us? The doulos of Christ. The slave of Christ. And he's speaking of the Master, our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Master. This is language of authority. And this authority language is going to go all through the book. One who has authority over our sexuality, the master of our ethics, the one who tells us the way that it is. And oh, friends, you might find an application or two to current events, but oh, I don't think there's a lot in our society that likes authority. Certainly doesn't like the language of one who is a master, a master over ethics and sexuality and morality. And so, these certain people creep into the faith family and they start twisting and perverting the grace of God. And they turn it into something else. What do they turn it into? They turn it into sensuality. Not purity, impurity, immorality, sensuality. Taking the good gift of sex and turning it on on its head. This, This word perversion here, is into sensuality is the idea of perversion of grace into unbridled lust, into licentiousness, lasciviousness, outrageousness, shamelessness. Again, you think, wow, that's never going to happen, is it? And then we look around and we see, my goodness, when was he writing this? Did he write this last week? Because we look at the American church and we say, Ah, yeah, yeah, this is pretty much everywhere, which is why we have this call. I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but I am appealing to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. And what have they done? They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And now, three examples of this from the Old Testament. Three examples that we might not have, they might not have been the three that come to mind right away, but oh, I assure you, this is good. And Lou referred to one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, which is Matthew, or uh, Luke 24, rather, the, the resurrected Jesus walking with two disciples who don't get who they're talking to. Jesus gives them a Bible study showing them that Genesis, Nexus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of it is pointing to him. All of it is about him. He is, in fact, in all of it. If you've been at Jubilee a while, you've heard us talk about the angel of the Lord, that, that no one has seen the Father, but when, when, when God is revealed in the flesh, it is in the person of the pre-incarnate Christ. But all of it is pointing to Jesus, and we're going to see that here. Look at example number one in Jude 5. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. We're talking Exodus here. Jesus, is he in Exodus? According to Jude, yes. Yes, it was Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. And not only did he do remarkable act number one, saving them out of Egypt, he did remarkable act number two, which we read about in Numbers. 
because of the grumbling unbelief of the people, Jesus afterward destroyed those who did not believe. What's the sin that he's warning us against here? It is the most core of all sins, which is the sin of unbelief. A whole generation was destroyed. Not one of Caleb and Joshua's generation was alive as they crossed into the promised land, except for Caleb and Joshua, because they did not believe. Grumble, grumble, grumble. The spies go into the land. No, God, you brought us out here to kill us. And Jude is saying to us that it was Jesus who saved the people and Jesus who destroyed that generation. And why did all of that happen? Well, it happened in part for our instruction. For our instruction. That we would take seriously the unbelief of our heart that threatens to creep up and destroy us. So when we hear this call to contend for the faith, we are contending against unbelief and all of its bitter fruits. Might be the fruit of fear, anxiety, might be the fruit of lust, might be the fruit of greed, might be the fruit of anger, believing that God is not good, He's not for you, He's not worthy of your life. You deserve better. Unbelief is so deadly in our hearts. And so He says, I want to remind you. That's example one. Example two, verse six. Again, got to put our thinking caps on. Got to get our concordance out and say, what is he talking about here? Verse six, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains and under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And you say, whoa, what is he talking about here? Most commentators agree what he's talking about here is Genesis 6. All right? We want to look into the text. Whenever we're, we're puzzled here, we're always trying to push into the text and get clues to see what he's talking about. If we, if we peek into verse 7, we're not going to go all of verse 7, but he, he, he's going to speak in the third example about those who likewise indulged in sexual immorality, which is a clue that here in verse 6, the sin was sexual immorality. So we've got angels who did not remain in their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling and engaged in sexual immorality. And in Genesis 6, we read about the sons of God taking up with the daughters of men in some awful form of impropriety, immorality. All right? So we don't, we're not going to spend the whole time talking about Genesis 6, but there is something going on there that led to great wickedness. And likely, this is what it's about here in verse 6. What's the point? What's the point? Well, two things we must see in verse 6. First thing is that the angels misuse their authority. They had a place of authority. This is a group of angels, certainly not all angels, but a group of angels misused their authority. They abused their authority. And they committed sexual immorality of a gross kind, an awful kind, according to Scripture. Now we say, how does that all work? I don't know. I don't know. Not our task for today. Some things you'll have to ask God in heaven. 
what we do know is authority was abused. And we know there are lots of applications of that. Oh, friends, how many people have been scarred by those that have abused their authority as pastors, as teachers, as parents. And here, there is a warning against those who would like this abuse their authority, and we must stand against that. So many of the most bitter opponents of Christianity are those who have experienced gross misuse and abuse of authority. And these angels did not stay in their place. The other very brief thing I want you to notice here is the word keep and kept. Lou mentioned that it occurs three times in the book. Some would argue it occurs four times. And two of those times are in verse 6. So the first and the last example are very positive. We are kept in Jesus, and the very last benediction is he can keep us and he will keep us. But here in verse 6, it says, the angels who did not keep within their own position of authority in multiple translations. And I think that's intentional there. The author is using the word keep there, who did not keep within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. The Lord has kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness. There's a positive keeping, and there's this negative keeping. Those who pervert the grace of God are kept for destruction. That is the point here. It is a warning that is stern, that is important. Last example, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, which were, was a beautiful area. According to Genesis 13, it says that these were beautiful cities, well watered, like a garden of the Lord. But these likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. They serve for us now, here in 2019, as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Ezekiel says this about Sodom. It says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease. It's unlike any country you know. A lot of food, beautiful cities, prosperous ease, pride. But they did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty, and they did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it, says the Lord. And here he is pointing not to their disregard of the poor, which happened, but to the reality that they engaged in sexual immorality and they pursued unnatural desire, which we know is homosexual activity. And, oh, friends, I am very aware that even to go here in our current day is controversial. I know that in the years to come, perhaps a decade from now, what I'm about to say on a sermon tape could get me thrown in jail. But friends, this is what contending for the faith is about. It's speaking what's true according to the need of the moment. Friends, whether you know it or not, think you do, whether you acknowledge it or not, we, all of us in America, are being pressed into a mold. There is a war in this generation, and we must contend for the faith once for all, delivered to our saints, delivered to the saints.
And this verse is ground zero of part of the war, a big part of the war. Our schools are absolutely being assaulted and going to be assaulted more and more. Our churches are under assault and will be assaulted more and more. And your homes are under assault. I was at Restoration Church in Washington, D.C. Uh, a year or so ago, and I was with a brother from Romania. And, and he, we were talking about a number of things, and he said, he said, America. He said, it reminds me so much of the, the past days in Romania. In Romania, there was a party, the Communist Party, and everybody had to either agree or they were trampled over by it. He said, America, it's just like that now. He said, in Washington, D.C., I can see it. At the highest levels of government, the highest levels of corporation, there is absolutely an agenda of normalizing, of, of removing any barrier to homosexuality and its practice, to, to all these forms of, of sexual immorality. And he said, in, in Romania, either God on board or you were destroyed. He said, more and more and more. You're going to see it across the nation. Either get on board or you're destroyed. And friends, I'm here to tell you, we have a serious fight on our hands. The fight is not that homosexuality is the worst sin. It's not the unforgivable sin. It's not, no, 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 that's not what it is. But it is exactly what the Word of God is saying here, that there are many who want to take the grace of God and pervert it into sensuality, denying our Master and our Lord. This is unnatural desire. It is a putting off the glory of God. It is practicing what the Bible says is not okay. Whether you are heterosexual or homosexual, immorality is not okay for our Master and Lord. And He is saying, don't be among those certain people who take the grace of God and pervert it. You don't say to your friend who's struggling with same-sex attraction, you're fine, you're fine, that's just the way God made you. We preach the gospel to them just like you say to your friend who's struggling with sexual immorality. You say, flee, flee, turn to Jesus. He is the Savior of all of us. All we like sheep have turned astray, each of us to our own way. We don't send people back hopeless without the Savior, with some false gospel. We give them the good news that Christ rescues and redeems all of us from all of our different kinds of brokenness. And friends, there is no question that as we read here, Sodom and Gomorrah, they pursued sexual immorality, they indulged in unnatural desire, and they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. An example for who? An example for us. And there is no question, men and women, boys and girls, that we must contend for the faith. All of it. The most controversial points of it. That point of controversy is different in different ages. Two centuries ago, speak out against slavery was going to get you knocked down. Other generations, it's been other things. But wherever the fight is, this is where we must trust that God would help us contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But certain people creep in perverting the grace of God into sensuality. Gender is something, suddenly something that's not a thing. 
Boys are no longer boys. Girls no longer girls. Marriage no longer male-female. And to even suggest that it is, is the height of intolerance and bigotry and hatred and hate speech. And guess what, parents? Your children are going to be absolutely formed into that vice as they turn on screens. Think the Disney Channel is just about Mickey Mouse? Oh, no. Oh, no. Think Netflix is just about some harmless cartoon? Oh, no. You've got to be on guard. And everyone who's working in education knows this is a battlefield. And so, we say, God, help us. Not those who are haughty. Those who are saying, I'm Jesus' brother. No. Those who know ourselves to be the doulos of Christ. The slave of Christ. And yet called to be saints. Beloved in the Father. Kept for Jesus. And so, Jubilee, let us talk together about how we will disciple our children. And think about screens. Think about evaluating friendships. Think about evaluating education. And together as a church, as we gather in our missional life groups, as we gather in men's retreats and women's retreats at Revive and Jubilee Kids, Sermons for Saplings gathers, we gather in grief and enjoy all the while hearing this call to contend for the faith in our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. For we are the slaves of Christ, called, beloved, kept. May His mercy be multiplied to us. His peace be multiplied to us. His love be multiplied to us. Friend, if you are here today and you have never bowed the knee before our Master and Lord, know that He warns us of a certain judgment that is coming. These cities were destroyed, and so everyone who is an enemy of Christ, and that is if you have not bowed the knee, you are His enemy. He invites you to come and be accepted as His friend and loved one. But today's the day. You choose whom you will serve. Either Christ as master or yourself as king. And choose this day, friend, for what you will earnestly contend. There will be no neutral option. Let's pray. Father, who is sufficient for these things? Surely not us. As we hear this vital word, we are reminded how much we need you. And we ask that you would keep us and you would allow your mercy, your peace, and your love to be multiplied to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.